Have you noticed that America is totally polarized at the moment? Taking up sides has dominated public discourse and our democracy has ultimately suffered. We need to find common ground. That's why hosts Ashley Milne Tight and Richard Davies are bringing well-known people with different views together on the Let's Find Common Ground podcast to find common ground on some of the biggest issues in American public life, like race, the environment, and the pandemic, just to name a few. On a recent episode, they sat down to find common ground in Congress with Betsy Wright Hawkins, who served as the chief of staff for four Republican members of Congress over 25 years, and Tamara Lucio, who served as Hillary Clinton's chief of staff in the U.S. Senate from 2001 to 2009. Join hosts Ashley Milne-Tite and Richard Davies as they talk with top leaders in public policy, finance, academics, and more to offer a healing path to reaching agreement and moving forward. To listen, search Let's Find Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. America is on the move again, declared President Joe Biden to a joint session of Congress on April 28, 2021, and on the eve of the 100th day of his administration. In March, President Biden signed a 1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill, and just less than three weeks later, he unveiled a $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill, dubbed the American Jobs Plan. The American Jobs Plan calls for spending on a range of items like roads, bridges, water systems, and broadband access. But it also expands beyond traditional infrastructure spending to include addressing racial inequity and climate change. For too long, we've failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis. Jobs. 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 American Jobs Plan will put engineers and construction workers to work building more energy-efficient buildings and homes. Electrical workers, IBEW members installing 500,000 charging stations along our highways so we can own so we can own the electric car market. Farmers, farmers planting cover crops so they can reduce the carbon dioxide in the air and get paid for doing it. Look, think about it. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. None. No reason. American Jobs Plan is a blue-collar blueprint to build America. That's what it is. Congress is currently debating what exactly qualifies as infrastructure, and Republicans have introduced a smaller $568 billion infrastructure plan. President Biden also used his address to the joint session of Congress to introduce another massive domestic program, the $2 trillion American Families Plan aimed at widening the social safety net for Americans from preschool to those on Medicare. Parenthetically, if we were sitting down, set a bipartisan committee together and said, okay, we're gonna decide what we do in terms of government providing for free education. I wonder whether we'd think as we did in the 20th century, that 12 years is enough in the 21st century. I doubt it. 12 years is no longer enough today to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. 
That's why my American Families Plan guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America, starting as early as we can. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Joe, any country that out-educates us is going to out-compete us. The American Families Plan will finally provide up to 12 weeks of paid leave and medical leave, family medical leave. We're one of the few industrial countries in the world. No one should have to choose between a job and a paycheck or taking care of themselves and their loved ones or parent or spouse or child. We all know how outrageously expensive drugs are in America. In fact, we pay the highest prescription drug prices of anywhere in the world, right here in America. Nearly three times. Let's give Medicare the power to save hundreds of billions out by negotiating lower drug prescription prices. President Biden framed the expanded federal programs as a new deal for the middle class to compete globally in the 21st century. He also argued his proposal to tax wealthy Americans and corporations was a fair approach. Good guys and women on Wall Street, but Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. My fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle-down economics has never worked. And it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Dr. Kara ong Whaley, Associate Director at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University, and your co-host. In this episode, Caitlin Tolley, a first-year finance major in JMU's College of Business, moderates a discussion with economic policy experts Flint Engelman from Americans for Prosperity and Ben Ritz, director of the Public Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future, about the presidential administration's economic policy priorities and its impacts on Americans. Enjoy the episode. What does the change in presidential administration mean for businesses and financial regulation? There's a significant change is, is, is on the horizon. It's already started as of January 20 with a stroke of the pen by President Biden. Uh, a lot of executive orders took uh, uh, a lot of uh, wind out of what he was saying and, and brought attention to what he was doing. Um, so uh, we're looking for a lot of, lot of big government increases um, on many different levels. Uh, if you're watching the news and, and informed, you know you're everything from infrastructure to uh, uh, gun rights to uh, you name it, um, it is on the board right now and moving through, through the House uh, uh, and into the Senate. Uh, discussions on government uh, and how the federal government will operate about the filibuster. Uh, there's a movement on the left to change that and to remove that, uh, which would uh, stifle speech from uh, a lot of representatives, a lot of U.S. senators, that they represent constituents and they should have a voice even though they're in the minority. Um, but uh, looking on a lot of, lot of regulations uh, that are really going to make a lot of impact. Uh, specifically, um, I want to point out in Virginia, uh, Southwest Virginia, on the energy sector. Um, a lot of the regulations that that he uh, that Biden has already enacted through executive order uh, is impacting those folks down there. The folks involved with mines, uh, fracking, um, 
and other contractors is already impacting jobs. Um, and of course, he stopped the Keystone uh, Pipeline, uh, which, uh, which eliminated about um, 50,000 jobs. And most of those have not found employment uh, since then. So you're gonna see a lot, a lot of government expansion. Uh, bigger government, little citizen, as they might say. Um, so uh, probably predictably being from the Progressive Policy Institute, I have a, a little bit of a different interpretation. Um, I think the change of administration is bringing back a welcome uh, level of competence and predictability in the regulatory process. I think that um, whether you agreed with or disagreed with what happened under President Trump, um, a lot of the rulemaking was uh, chaotic, difficult to follow. Um, I know that a lot of people in the business community really had no idea what was happening at any given time. Um, and people within the administration often didn't know what was happening. Um, even, even I know business folks who uh, are not in total agreement with what the administration are doing, um, at least find it to be much more um, of, a, of an open and understandable process, um, sort of a return to how, uh, a lot of it is honestly a return to policies we had under President Obama. Um, the, there are new, um, there, there are uh, additional regulations on the energy sector, as, as Flint said, but nothing, nothing really that much more than we had under President Obama. A lot of it got um, overturned when the Trump administration came in, and so this was putting a lot of elements of Obama's clean power plan back into place. Um, I think another element is that it's going for businesses and financial regulation is that it means that the watchdogs are going to go back to doing their jobs. I think that we had a lot of regulators who uh, were inclined to look the other way under President Trump or who um, we appointed regulators who weren't who were more favorable towards industry rather than uh, consumers. And I think that uh, under President Biden, we are seeing much more uh, enforcement of the law moving forward and attempts to um, have businesses and the economy working for, for normal people. What are the economic policy priorities of the Biden administration and how will they impact various sectors of the American economy and society? I think we're seeing really five key priorities from them um, as evidenced in their, their recent uh, policy proposals, the American Jobs Plan and the Family Plan. Um, I think the first one is getting COVID under control and reopening the economy. I think that is far and away their top priority. Um, I think next we have uh, rebuilding our infrastructure and um, restoring some of that uh, underinvestment we've had in recent decades. Infrastructure spending uh, was at historical lows for the last 10 years, um, was falling for decades beforehand. And so I think that um, modernizing our infrastructure is, is one of their top priorities. Uh, next we have tackling climate change. Uh, that's gonna be the biggest threat to uh, my and your generation. Um, it's going to, uh, if we don't do anything about climate change, it's going to impose untold costs on the economy. Um, and so getting climate change under control, I think is one of their top priorities. Uh, supporting caregivers and the caregiving economy. So that's both childcare and um, long-term care, supporting families, um, education. These are, these are important investments for the Biden administration and is the main focus of his family plan that um, came out today. And then I think the last element is tax fairness. Um, a lot of President Biden's proposals have been uh, big spending plans and he's proposed to pay for them with uh, tax increases, mostly on um, higher income folks and uh, businesses. And so I think those are sort of the, the five key um, 
priorities for the Biden administration. As far as uh, the impact that they're going to have on the economy and society, I think they're going to be largely positive. Um, I don't think uh, I would agree with necessarily every single one of them, but I think that uh, they will help us restore investments that have been slashed in recent years and will help us position the economy to succeed a lot more going forward. To be honest with everybody, I'm going to be very straightforward. I'm um, a nonpartisan organization. Uh, we lean center right, uh, but uh, it, the main impact, I would say, of the, of the policy priorities of the Biden administration is going to be the impact to our national debt. Um, that's, that's going to be the main thing that's going to hang on the millennial generation and generations beyond that. Uh, it's, it's a significant impact. Um, spent so far $1.9 billion in a bailout plan. It was supposed to be the COVID Act. Only 10% of that actually went to immunization and methods to help with that. The current infrastructure plan that he has, uh, and only about half of that has been public. So there's not as much transparency been as you might think. Uh, they've only revealed about half of that to the public. Right now, it's about 2.2 trillion. It looks like it could be 3 trillion or more. Now, the, the, the interesting impact of the uh, uh, infrastructure plan is only about 6% of it goes to actual infrastructure of the country. Roads, bridges, uh, electrical um, improvements to airports. Uh, the rest of it are the elements of the Green New Deal um, and a lot of favoritism uh, this, then this has not been in the news as much, but a lot of uh, work uh, to really favor unions, union organizing in Virginia and beyond. Um, a lot of jobs that could be uh, prospering under the current tax code um, may suffer under uh, a lot of the favoritism of the, of the Biden uh, plan. So. Uh, we're looking at also, uh, I guess the other part, or you, you also mentioned the, the uh, different sectors that may be impacted. Um, fossil energy is one that's gonna be impacted directly in here in Southwest Virginia. Um, medium to small businesses, they're gonna see uh, a lot of credit restraints happening and not as much capital going forward to help these businesses grow, create jobs, grow their business, buy more equipment. Um, and corporation, they're going to see their taxes going up as part of the tax plan he has um, and increase in regulations. Uh, taxpayers, uh, the, the current plan will not pay for itself entirely uh, through just jumping the corporate tax rate up. So it's going to impact consumers in one way or another uh, and directly through unfunded mandates and uh, just kind of trickle down taxation. The Republican Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017 made significant changes to the U.S. Revenue Code. Now that we are a few years out from the law taking effect, what have been the impacts of the tax reform on American individuals, families, small businesses, nonprofits, and corporations? How has the national debt been affected by the amendments to the tax code? What is the Biden's administration's plan, and how might it impact Americans' families? small businesses, nonprofits, and corporations? The, the benefits of it uh, prior to COVID uh, was, was 
incredible uh, job increases for a lot of different um, Americans, uh, for minorities, uh, an increase in income, uh, decrease in business regulation, uh, decreases in, in energy, um, which helped business as well. Uh, it also made uh, America more uh, globally uh, competitive. When um, we brought the, uh, the corporate tax rate down to 21%, we were at uh, you know, over 29%. Um, the average for most nations is about 25% for those that are uh, have a Western economy. And it made us highly uh, attractive, uh, not just to businesses coming into America, but investing and bringing their money, their cash into the American economy. Um, and then uh, energy independence. Uh, we obtained independence about, uh, I think it was about middle of last year, whereas we had the, the gas and the, um, the oil reserves uh, to become independent with that. So um, a lot of benefits happened um, with that. Uh, so uh, your second question was uh, uh, the, the uh, national debt, how's it been impacted by the tax code changes? Uh, to be honest, it, it did not have uh, uh, the, the full impact of, uh, of, of helping to reduce the debt. It, it did grow, uh, but I will mention that there was spending last year uh, uh, on COVID on several different packages it went through that ramped up the national debt. Um, so uh, that was a that was a big impact on on our national debt. And uh, again, we're sitting at 20, $28.2 trillion. Uh, so we need to continue to work on reducing spending um, to just uh, make sure our budgets and uh, make sure our future generations don't have a big debt load. Keep going with the uh, the third aspect of it on the uh, Biden tax plan. Um, what will it impact? Um, I mentioned there will be uh, you know tax increases, and it makes us uh, less globally competitive because it will take us back up to twenty nine percent, like I mentioned. Um, and uh, so I'm, I mentioned that in a previous question a lot of that, uh, but the the main thing uh, I wanted to say. Um, is the timing of this. Uh, this is not good timing for America. We are still technically uh, under the impact of a pandemic. Uh, and a lot of business sectors are, are trying to get their feet on the ground and come out of this. Uh, everything from restaurants to cruise lines, uh, theaters, you know, a lot of theaters closed down during the pandemic. Um, what else? Airlines are rebounding. They're starting to add flights now, but they had to go through a lot of, a lot of uh, situations. But um, and uh, actually, the movie industry, California, was really impacted uh, by COVID because of theater production and movie production. So uh, I will just say that America is still recovering, and our economy is going to continue to need time to recover. And that's why, if there is going to be a tax increase. I, I would not be doing it right now. I would let, let our country get our feet back on the ground and move forward and, and to, uh, uh, until we have a better basis uh, to think about this. Thank you. Okay, um, so I will answer that question, but I'm also gonna take uh, Caitlin up on her uh, offer to respond to just a couple things on the last question, um, just because uh, so I'm just looking back at President Biden's um, infrastructure plan. 
And uh, it really is mostly infrastructure. I mean, Flint is right that it's not 100% infrastructure, but uh, 620 billion of it is for transportation infrastructure. We have another 600 billion for domestic manufacturing uh, and research and development, things that are um, you know important investments in uh, things that are, are infrastructure adjacent. We have money for other forms of infrastructure like broadband, waterways, um, airports. Uh, and so really there there is about a third to, or about a quarter to a third of it um, that's dubiously infrastructure, but it's definitely a lot more than, um, than, than 10%. Um, and also the vast majority of President Biden's proposals, ha- he has proposed ways to uh, pay for them. I don't think that, uh, if you look at the difference between what Biden has proposed to spend on non-COVID relief and what he has proposed for pay-fors, um, the difference in them is actually smaller than the difference uh, than the cost of the the Trump tax cuts. And so um, I think that, and then also because they're gonna pass it through uh, the budget reconciliation process, that's also gonna require a lot of it to be paid for. So um, I actually think that the national debt impact of of what President Biden's proposing is going to be lower than the national debt impact of uh, of the the Trump tax cuts. Um, and so moving moving into that part of the question here, um, I think that uh, we actually didn't see the the tax cuts really do what they were they were promised to do. Um, as as Flint said, a lot of the debt increase was because of COVID spending, um, but we were on track for a trillion dollar deficit last year and every year thereafter um, before COVID spending. So even if there was no COVID, even if we were operating at full employment, um, we were still having massive deficits. Um, and that was uh, not entirely, but in, in significant part due to the Trump tax cuts. Uh, we did have a, a relatively good economy before um, COVID hit, but I actually think that's more attributable to um, the recovery that President Trump inherited. We just, we had a strong economy, uh, an economy that was growing stronger in 2017, continuing to grow uh, in 2017, 18 and 19. Uh, and I think that the tax cuts, even if they did have some modest positive impact, uh, were probably not worth the, the cost uh, from them. Um, I think President Biden's tax plan, I think some elements of it are better than others. I, I would say there are some parts um, that I have concerns about. Um, but the, the corporate income tax rate going back up to 28%, that's still much lower than the 35% it was under President Obama and President Bush and President Clinton. Um, so it is still a move in the right direction. And I think before President Trump came into office, uh, a lot of folks were talking about targeting a 28% rate. Um, and even so, I think uh, right now, it sounds like Congress is actually only gonna raise it up to 25%. So I don't think that's gonna be too uh, damaging. I think that uh, on the some of the changes to investment taxation, like capital gains, um, are going to make our tax code a lot fairer. Um, and I think that by raising these taxes in an equitable way, and not on the industries that are suffering, but on the ones that are succeeding and high-income taxpayers, um, I think that should minimize the damage to both the economy and the national debt going forward. Why is addressing the national debt important, and what recommendations would you make to policymakers? So I think the main reason the national debt is important is because of interest costs. Every dollar that we borrow, that the federal government borrows, it then has to pay interest on. Right now, interest rates are pretty low, and so we can borrow a lot of money to fight the COVID pandemic and the recession um, and make you know uh, investments in infrastructure 
uh, at a relatively low cost. But if we continue to run massive chronic deficits, uh, then when interest rates rise, that those interest costs are going to crowd out other important public investments like infrastructure, scientific research, education, um, that really lay the foundation for long-term growth. And so what recommendations I would make to uh, policymakers is I think first, um, we want to make sure that as we are addressing the national debt, we do it um, in a way that's not going to hurt the economic recovery. Um, I think that uh, Flint is right that now is not the time to do significant deficit reduction. Um, we, you know, we're, we're still trying to get out of the pandemic and we have, we have tons of time afterwards. Uh, everybody uh, agrees that the time to fix the roof is uh, when the sun's shining, not in the middle of a rainstorm. So uh, let's, let's get through this and then start looking at deficit reduction. But when we do, I think it's important that we uh, protect those public investments. We don't want to cut the part of the budget that's growing our economy. We want to uh, look at both revenues and um, consumption spending that's not really getting us the big bang for the buck. Uh, and so that means we should invest in uh, long-term investments. We should modernize our healthcare and retirement programs for our aging society. Um, the ratio of uh, taxpayers to beneficiaries in programs like Social Security and Medicare is changing so that we have um, fewer taxpayers paying in to support each beneficiary. That requires some change in tax and benefit levels. Um, and then we need to control healthcare costs because our healthcare costs are the highest in the world. And if we don't get those under control, um, healthcare spending is becoming the biggest part of the federal budget. It's only going to grow further. And so if we want to get the deficit down, we need to control healthcare costs. And we need a fairer tax code that uh, rewards work over wealth. That means, I think, closing some important loopholes like how um, uh, income that someone inherits is either not taxed or taxed at a lower rate than income you earn through your own investment or hard work. Uh, and I think we need to uh, make sure that everybody is paying their fair share and we have a tax code that has as few loopholes as possible. Okay, uh, national debt, I've, I've already mentioned a couple times. I, I really believe for uh, for your generation and below is, is going to be, um, you know, a significant weight on your shoulders uh, as we look to future generations. But um, a little bit about what Ben was saying was looking at our, our debt to GDP ratio. Uh, generally, this is a gauge of of how underneath your uh, your country is on spending and uh, how your economy is moving. In 1960, we're 52 percent. 1980 was 34%. 2000, our debt was 58% of our GDP, and now it's 130%. So we have uh, we are uh, below water, so to speak, uh, when it comes to um, um, uh, our fiscal health. Uh, solution is is what we our organization and has advocated for a long time is uh, baseline budgeting. Uh, instead of, uh, for instance, instead of a department getting a, uh, a six to eight percent increase in their departmental uh, allocation for a year, just do two to three percent over increase over 10 years for each year. And over time, it will help curb our spending and get our baseline budget under control. The other is uh, returning to regular order. Uh, our budgeting through the House has been uh, through either Republican or Democrat, has been using CRs, continuing resolutions, just to cycle budget after budget through each year. Uh, we need to return to regular order, meaning a committee structure 
where there's a real look at, at each department and, and how the budgeting and payment is going. Uh, and let, and let you know, representatives of each party uh, have a role in, in the structure of the budget so it's healthy and so our country can be, uh, can be vibrant. Um, there's one thing I do want to talk about, and uh, this it's if you listen to uh, business networks and uh, some media sources, it's, uh, it's 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 percolating and it's starting to come up uh, be more uh, aware. It's called modern monetary theory. I'm just interested if anybody has heard that before. Uh, it's a mindset basically um, uh, adopted by lobbyists and bureaucrats um, that uh, America's uh, basic or the word gold standard globally and uh, uh, that we have such a fiscal structure in this country that we can't go um, uh, underneath fiscally and we're, we're basically fail proof um, and that's being picked up more and more by U.S. senators and, and House members uh, that they're not really concerned about the debt at all uh, that they they just are assuming we can continue to spend even though it's uh, more than our country can take. Um, this this is uh, talked about more and more on business networks. Uh, and and um, so uh, we hope uh, politicians will not uh, adopt this and become fiscally responsible. What advice do you have for students to learn more and get involved in public policy and decision-making processes? What sources of information do you recommend students seek out to better understand how policy impacts business and the economy? Um, yeah, I would. I, I do a, a lot of grassroots work in Virginia um, on the federal, state, and local level. Um, I would, from from my perspective, uh, uh, hearing from my activists and legislators, uh, don't just focus all on federal policy when you're when you're looking at the news or through your news sources. Uh, look into state government. Uh, there's a lot of policy that's coming out, of, especially in Virginia. Uh, out of Richmond over the last two years has dramatically changed. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's a good time to hold, hold Richmond accountable. And there's policy happening on a local level as well. There's taxes for hotels, lodging that, that have gone up in Virginia considerably. Uh, there's uh, uh, counties and cities are now considering uh, collective bargaining or with or will uh, government, they'll allow government unions uh, to unionize uh, within the counties and cities of Virginia. So uh, just don't think federal all the time. Look look at your home state and your locality as well. Um, get to know your legislators on the federal, state, local level. Um, know how to contact them, uh, raise your voice uh, by email or call their office uh, to express your opinion. Um, go, if they're having a town hall, I would recommend going to that. If you're a congressman or senator or even a state representatives doing a town hall. It's a really great uh, experience to, to hear from them. Um, if you're a conservative minded, I'd recommend going to CPAC. Uh, CPAC has a lot of great policy work as well that they do that you don't see on the main stage. It's not all speakers. Uh, it's, it's great for, uh, for our young college folks to, to, to really uh, get some experience with. Um, if you're of a center right, there's think tanks I recommend. Um, I'm sure Ben will cringe on these, but uh, uh, but Cato, Mercatus, American Enterprise Institute, 
Uh, and on the state level, uh, the American Legislative Exchange, they do uh, a lot of work to help uh, uh, state legislators uh, decide what policy will be considered uh, across the country. Um, so that's, that's what I'd recommend to, uh, to how to get involved in different ways. But, uh, but building on that, uh, in addition to, to Flint's recommendations, um, I would say that if you're if you're more left-minded focused, I think you look at some center-left think tanks like, I mean, obviously, uh, Progressive Policy Institute, we're one, um, we're more center-left, um, but then sort of moving uh, a little further. And then in the center, you have groups like um, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, Bipartisan Policy Center, and Concord Coalition that are you know, very focused on, on fiscal responsibility. Um, moving a little further left, you have groups like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, and Center for American Progress um, that do, do a lot of good work. Uh, I highly recommend if you have the opportunity to do an internship um, at one of those organizations or on a campaign, that's, that's how I got my start was um, interning from think tank to think tank and just, you know, sort of working my way up there. Um, and then to the uh, second part of the question of sources of information, um, I would say that you should uh, you should look at some of these organizations that uh, that that we mentioned to get a, a you know a broader view of the the policy landscape. Um, for for sort of mainstream news outlets, I think there can be uh, some hit or miss. My favorite is probably the the Washington Post. Um, occasionally, I'll look at uh, New York Times or or Wall Street Journal. I think uh, uh, Jim Tankersley uh, at New York Times and Richard Rubin at the Wall Street Journal have some very good uh, pieces, but uh, but uh, I they have hits and they have misses uh, at uh, at the Times and uh, Wall Street Journal. So I, I generally stick to the to the Post in addition to the um, the the think tank groups. Yeah, I forgot the answer to that part of it. <laughs> it's a polar opposite of that, of course. But uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, the Washington Examiner's a, a good uh, kind of good source. Uh, for for old paper news, um, if you're at business finance, uh, recommend recommend Fox Business Network. Um, you can listen to there's Cudlow, uh, there's a Varney show. Uh, really, you know, free free market type guys. Uh, for general news, even if even if you're center left, it's always good to to listen to different points of view. Uh, might consider One American News or Newsmax. And uh, if you're into radio, there's a long form uh, radio show that's on in the evenings called the John Bachelor Show. And he really discusses policy at length. Um, sometimes it puts me to sleep, but, <laughs> but it's, it's very good. It's a really, really good deep dive about policy that's happening right now. What would each of you do to strengthen American democracy? Um, I, it's a great question. Um, I think that, uh, Man, there are so many things. I guess I'll just try to run through a quick list. Uh, I think one of some of the most important things, uh, if we could move to a national popular vote, um, I think that would be, that's enormously important. I think it's it's deeply problematic that um, we regular we now, it, this wasn't a problem generally, but uh, more recently we have presidents who get fewer votes than their opponent becoming president. I think that's a big problem. So uh, we should move to a national popular vote. Um, I think term limits for Supreme Court justices is good. Um, it's we obviously want the judiciary to be um, impartial and, and above politics, but I think that 
having these lifetime appointments turns each opening into a, a knockdown, drag out existential fight for, you know, the future of the country. And I think we don't want all of that power in an elected, uh, unelected body. So I would, I would have term limits for the Supreme Court. Um, DC statehood, I think, would be a, a good thing because we have um, about half a million citizens who don't have who live in the United States and don't have congressional representation. I think that's a problem. Um, ranked choice voting, I think, would do a lot to uh, to reduce polarization and get some more viewpoints in Congress. Uh, it's worked very well in Alaska and California and Maine, and I think it would work well in other states too. Uh, making voting access more available, so increasing hours for voting and mail-in voting, I think, um, would be great for uh, participation. Uh, felony reenfranchisement, letting people who, after they've served their time, get their voting rights back, uh, would expand uh, voting rights and give more people say in how government works. Uh, automatic voter registration would be good for the same reason. And then uh, I think independent redistricting commissions to crack down on gerrymandering and let people pick their politicians instead of the other way around. I think that would uh, reduce polarization and get some more representative people in Washington. Like Ben Franklin said, you know, it's a republic if you can keep it. So what I encourage is, is people to become involved and engage to hold uh, government accountable. Um, just going through uh, something we did not really talk about too much today is health care, uh, not just because of the pandemic, but the cost of health care is, is going up. Um, it's, it's unaffordable in many ways for people, not just the premium, but the, the pay the minimums as well as way too high, thousands of dollars before your minimum is satisfied, uh, can really impact people there, uh, especially in lower income. Um, so, you know, I would advocate for a more of a, a market-based system uh, prior to Obamacare. Uh, but this one is, is more, um, I'm talking free market, what I need is, uh, what I'm talking about is returning more to a relationship between the doctor and the patient. Uh, right now, it's governments having a mandate on to insurance companies uh, for the policy mandates for uh, people to get insurance. Um, there's uh, you know, concerns over uh, Medicaid as well as if, if spending uh, should be that excessive to all people. Uh, but it really should be more of a free market type economy to give people more choice and uh, what they want. Uh, the national debt, I'll just touch on that. I already talked about it enough, but 28 trillion and climbing is, is uh, a dangerous sign. Um, I'll talk about, I'll mention term limits, uh, but this one is for Congress, uh, for the House and Senate. We've got people that have been in the House or Senate for over 30 years. Uh, and it's always good to get good representation from different people out of your state. Um, and then uh, the other one is to make sure states, uh, that, that the, the 10th Amendment is, is observed, states' rights are protected uh, and that the federal government does not overreach. Uh, but basically, you know, we need to make sure the individual rights of Americans are protected and to give people more of an opportunity at all income levels uh, to have, have opportunity to, to thrive and prosper in America.